So the question that I hope we're gonna ask ourselves walking out of this room is, is it the community resources and supports that are actually needed in our communities? Or is it the electronic monitoring? Because at the end of the day, we cannot put our hope that technology is going to change a human addiction. That uh, an electrical device is gonna change somebody's mental instability. That it's gonna take somebody from poverty and put them in a position of wealth. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Justice LA Coalition is celebrating the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors' recent vote to abandon a nearly $2 billion contract to build a 4,000-bed jail for mentally ill people and instead to consider funding a community-based mental health and substance abuse care. When the vote was taken, over 200 members of the Justice LA Coalition filled the hall in downtown Los Angeles, many of them wearing orange shirts with Can't Get Well in a Cell written on the backs. Coalition member Yvette Ale told the press that the vote was a crucial action for alternatives to incarceration. The coalition has stated that it would prefer to have mental health and substance abuse treatment centers in each of the city's five supervisorial districts instead of new jails. The coalition hailed the move as a change to viewing public safety. Ale said, quote, We're not just saying don't build, but we're saying build community-based infrastructure that supports folks with mental health issues, unquote. This week, we hear a panel that recently took place in Indianapolis. As we heard in last week's show, Indiana Against Ecarceration has been organizing to educate the public about issues surrounding electronic monitoring. In this panel, we hear firsthand accounts of electronic monitoring and learn more about the campaign against decarceration. When I modified out, I went to Community Corrections. They send you to work with this first. I transferred from DLC to Community Corrections in Indianapolis. And I was okay with that. It's like, no matter what they tell you, it's kind of like, uh, you can find gratitude in anything, you know, like just get me out of this situation and put me over here and, and I'm okay with it. So it didn't matter, but I was under the old laws at the time where house arrest was one for one. So while I was at work release, that was my goal to get to house arrest. So I had a, I had 10 years, I had a 10 year sentence of the 20 knocked out, the 10 to five part. I still had another 10 left and uh, they modified me to house arrest from within community corrections which means I, it's day for day. So now I got, I got 10 years to do. I remember them giving me my paperwork for it. And I think I owed at the time, when they gave me my initial paperwork, it has your total cost for the whole 10 years on there. And I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-nine or $40,000. I remember looking at that thinking, my God. But it's okay because it was better than work release and definitely better than prison. And anything's better than Marion County Jail. So you're in Marion County Jail, 
uh, I don't care. You, they give you the option in Marion County Jail, you can do 30 days in here or a year on house arrest. You go, if you've been to Marion County Jail, you will do a whole year on house arrest before you do 30 days in jail. So that's just the comparison to that. So anyway, so as I'm on, I, I was, I was doing okay on house arrest at first. I was making, I think I was at $12 a day and I was staying up on my finances uh, with paying them. Going down there, uh, I think at the beginning, I was on once every two weeks visit, then it went to once every month, once every two months. It's still a, a disruption in my life, you know? And I, I worked at the time, I got a job at a, a, a reentry program. If it wasn't for the reentry program, I would not have been able to hold a job. You know, you call down there, you got like the work. So here I am, I struggle to get a job and I get a job and then I got to tell my employer, uh, by the way, I got to see my officer next week and I got to take a drop every single week and I don't know what day that's going to be on. So, I, I mean, I just don't sit right with some, but I was blessed enough to get a job at a reentry program. So that kind of helped me along the way. Uh, but through that process, uh, I started using drugs again. See, my problem, that, that's just it. Like, community corrections, they try to treat a problem with another problem. A lot of people, a high percentage of people that go to, they go to jail, man, there's drugs and alcohol involved with it. So they don't treat the individual, they just, it's okay. The solution is ease overcrowding, but you ease overcrowding by uh, adding to the recidivism rate because it just goes right back up because nobody can stay out. Nobody can meet the demands. I mean, you get out of it. I just say for me, once I started using drugs, lost my job, I still had a report downtown. I had 11 officers, 11, two, I do three hands, two and one, 11 officers, two officers were the same. I had two officers twice while I was on house arrest. All right, so they focus on the money, so not once did anyone think to say, you, you, you paid good for a couple of years and you was doing really well, but now you just, so then no, the, the problem wasn't identified. And I know some people say, well, it's a, he's an addict, you shouldn't have stopped using drugs. Once when an addict picks up drugs for the first time again, he has no choice after that. This is not Nancy Reagan just say no stuff. You can't do, you can't do that, it's not possible. For an addict, so what they deem as like with house arrest now, you know, you go to you go to jail and they, they kick you out of jail and put you on that. They they call it a front end solution to prison. It's not. It's not because you you're never treating the individual. I mean, addict. There's people on house arrest with mental illness and, and, and drug problems, and if we can't we can't get to the root of that, we never. It's easy to shove people on house arrest. When you're in jail, you will you will sign on to anything to get out of jail. I don't care what it is. You will sign on to it, even though you can't make your financial obligations to it. You can, if you're if you're a drug addict, you can't make meet your financial obligations to your children or your own self. You know, you you barely struggle. I know guys. I'm I've been clean almost seven years now from drugs and alcohol. Thank God for that. Uh, and I'm I'm I volunteer and mentor at a 116 men treatment center here in Indianapolis. There's a lot of guys in their own house arrest living at a treatment center, but there's also a lot of guys at the mission with ankle braces on. I mean, like, come on, house arrest, the word house insinuates you have a home, you know. So we I mean it's just it's some real it's some issues with it and it's easy for people to not want to complain or buck the system because they're scared of retaliation. I'm not on paperwork today. I do not have, I am a legitimate 
person today. I just bought a home for the first time in my life. And I am successful in my life today. And it's not because of house arrest. It is because I found recovery in the midst of house arrest. And it, that wasn't by way of uh, house arrest. So that's just my take on it. You know, you people get put in a bad situation with it and they can't afford it. They can't meet the demands. They have no transportation and all that stuff, but we sign up for it regardless because nobody wants to be in jail. We will sign up. If they told me you get on house arrest and eat uh, inner tubes for the rest of your life, I would be eating inner tubes because I do not want to be in jail. That's just the bottom line. It sounds funny and hilarious, but that's just the bottom line. We go to the, if I keep going to the emergency room for high blood pressure, they keep giving me medicine. I go back every month for the same thing. I get more medicine, more medicine. But not, and not at one point did anyone say, let's talk about what's causing high blood pressure so we can get you off of that medicine. That's my take on it. I went and interviewed the executive director of our community correction um, program in, in my county. I'm from Wells County. And um, I asked him a lot of questions. And on this paper, he almost made me wish I was on house arrest because this sounds like a cakewalk. They do everything for you. They support church and counseling and they work with you for meetings and, and all these things. They, I had, this was just notes that I took of opportunity that they say they give you in this program. And it is absolutely 100% not followed through. I can't check off one square that I can say everything in this square has happened with any individual that I've talked to in their experience on home detention. For example, if, you, if you're placed on home detention and you have a, a child that's in elementary school, for example, I'm, I was a single parent, I had three daughters, so I had one in each school at some points, you're not allowed to attend their events at all. You, you, you are able to schedule time out of your home if you live alone, you can schedule to mow your yard, but if there is another undisabled person, I don't know the proper verbiage for that, but a person who's not disabled, then they get to mow your yard. It doesn't matter if they're willing or they're whatever. If there's two people living in your home, you're not allowed to go outside and mow your yard. It's the other person's responsibility. If you need to grocery shop, um, they don't allow you to do that if there's another person in your home that can do that, but they will allow you to go to doctor's appointments, counseling, all the mental health, they say. Um, and I think that's inhumane. You don't get sunshine, you don't go outside, you stand in your doorway. If you're a smoker, you step outside your threshold, you're in violation, you can receive an escape charge for that, for being on your porch you at your residence. So you can schedule four smoke breaks a day now for 10 minutes outside your doorway. Set a chair outside your doorway. And at seven o'clock, I have 10 minutes to go smoke in your own home, you know? Um, if you're not a smoker, tough luck. You don't get to go outside for 10 minute breaks four times a day. You're just stuck inside. And even in DOC, you get wrecked at least one hour a day to go outside unless the weather stops you from it for activity. They will allow you to go to work because they need your money. Here it says that, I don't, I don't know what the fees were. I think when I was doing it, they actually worked with you with your income to come up with a, a 
a way to pay your your fees so I had three children I was like low income whatever mine was like seven dollars a day instead of eleven um, and they worked with me back then on the the initial fee but now it says here that if you are sentenced to home detention in my county through circuit court to get started whether or not you have circuit court means you have a felony so you have either been incarcerated until you've placed bond which is probably astronomical <laughs> um, come up with a bond to get out and await your trial on home detention because you're a flight risk it costs five hundred and ten dollars for the first 30 days plus a $50 installation fee plus $25 for any drug screen that they decide at any random time and they can do it three times a week if they choose plus $14.50 a day to be on the monitoring and that's due to start the $14.50 is included in that first $510 but it's $510 a month so I've been incarcerated I have a felony I can't get a job <laughs> like he said you go in and, and you immediately are in a position where, for example, when I was on home detention, in my own experience, I worked as a waitress. I was a car hop at a, at, a, at a job I loved, and I worked outside, and I made great money, and you bebop around, and it's 90-degree weather on pavement, and it was hot, and I wasn't allowed to work outside when I got on house, on house arrest because of my bracelet, because the people in the parking lot would see that, and it's not how the company wanted to represent themselves. So I lost hundreds of dollars that should have been available to me because your wage inside is set. You don't work for tips. And I was not able to do that because they didn't want to be embarrassed to have me there. So I had to bite that bullet. Their daughter came in one day. Um, it's a, it's a family owned business. She's probably four or five and I have a great uh, relationship with her. She asked me all kinds of questions and I dig it when she comes in. And one day she comes in and she's like, why are you wearing that? Because you're in shorts inside. It's hot. So why are you wearing that thing on your leg? And I said, oh, it's a bracelet somebody gave me. She said, Psh, I wouldn't wear it. That is ugly. And I was like, oh, God bless her heart. You know what I mean? And then every time she'd come in, she's like, you still wear that? I'd be like, I love my friend. <laughs> and then one day, the officers show up out of nowhere in the middle of your work shift at a restaurant, you know, to check on me to make sure I was there because this was before GPS. But they could drive by and it'll click or whatever to let them know that you're there you know they know what kind of car you drive you write down the make the model the year everything but the vin for your car so they can drive by the parking lot see that you're there they see you working inside but they're going to stop in to let everyone know that they're there to check on you so again going to your employer that's my personal business it's my issue and it shouldn't be public knowledge if when i go into an establishment to either you know, apply for a job or a job that I already have, at what point do I have to go in and say, this is, this is a problem I'm having, it's, it's not their issue. So the company then has a choice of, we're not gonna deal with the police coming in here, so we don't want you to work here. They can't really fire you for that, but they'll find a reason. We all know that there are ways to run somebody off. Um, people will treat you differently. I remember, um, I was a single mom, so I went to the grocery store. I'm walking through the store, and people would pull their children closer because they see that bracelet. Or you walk down the street instead of, you know, from your car to the building, and people look. Or, and you know that in their mind they're going, oh, she's going to community corrections. And who knows what they think you've done. If, if you weigh 120 pounds, they assume it's drugs. What, it causes all kinds of social injustice. 
It's just social injustice. You're, you're doing your time plus, you're putting all the people around you become your victims then. Because my employer had to allow an officer to come in during their working hours and disrupt what was going on to call me out in front of everyone. So just in case there were a couple girls that didn't catch on to my bracelet, and why are the cops here? Oh my God, they're here for April. Did she do something wrong? Are they gonna arrest her? You know what I mean? The, it was anxiety. I had such high anxiety. First and foremost, I wanna thank everybody that did speak and shared their stories. Can you guys hear me? Um, kind of touching on the stories that were shared today. These are post-conviction uh, electronic monitoring stories. And that's how electronic monitoring really got its foot in the doors through post-conviction. But the studies that have been done on electronic monitoring as a post-conviction or as a sentencing uh, mechanism is that it is ineffective. Um, the Federal uh, Probation Journal actually said in these words, despite the growing popularity of electronic supervision, the bulk of research fails to find a significant crime reduction benefit from using electronic supervision. That's their words. And this was actually a quote from a journal, uh, journaling that supported the growth of electronic monitoring. So they even identified, there's also another uh, wording in there that says that 89% of the probation officers, the parole officers that were supervising people on electronic monitoring, noted that it caused a, a breakdown in the family unit. It caused significant issues between spouses. It caused issues with the children. It caused issues in the household as a whole because there's so many hoops that they have to jump through in order to be successful on electronic monitoring. And that couples, detention, have to schedule, I can't go there, you know, they felt like they were being confined as well. So those are things that uh, we definitely heard that were shared in these stories here. But what I would like to do is kind of shift to tell the other side of the story. And being from the bail project, we post a bail on behalf of individuals. And they're still being given a pre-sentencing electronic monitoring. Now, that pre-sentencing electronic monitoring, if we stop and think about it, Electronic monitoring is a sentencing. It is a punishment. It is what people receive as a conviction. But people who yet have had their day in court, that have yet to been found guilty, have yet to been able to stand against their accusers, who have yet been able to put their argument before a court, are being expected to live by the same standard as somebody who has been convicted and punished to that. That would be equivalent to posting the bail on somebody's behalf and then having them transferred to a prison. There's no difference in that. So I wanted to touch on that. There's also um, a study that was done by the Pretrial um, Justice Institute. And this particular study for me stands out. It was actually done a few years back in 2011, but they actually included Marion County in their study. And I want to share some of what they said in that particular, uh, in their findings. It says, charging legally innocent people to be monitored electronically has the same flaw as secured money bond. It discriminates based on wealth and creates a heavier burden for those with limited means. Moreover, charging people for EM can create pressure to plead guilty so as to avoid further indebtedness or possible technical violations. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna include some wording that they used in their summary. EM as a condition of pretrial release grew out of the need to address the problem of jail overcrowding. Not that anybody found it to be a means of assisting or helping anybody, but to suit the need of jail overcrowding. The research conducted surrounding EM as a condition of pretrial release resulted in similar conclusions. Utilizing EM as a condition of pretrial release does not reduce failure to appear or rearrest. To the contrary, and I can speak to this as being a member of the Bell Project, it has a contrary effect. It makes it harder for people to be able to move forward. It makes it harder for them to go back and reestablish their employment, reconnect with their families, reconnect with their communities and their friends. Let's be honest, that little black box on somebody's ankle is the scarlet letter. And we're giving it to people with no care whatsoever. The same reason that it was implemented as a sentencing feature, as a prison release feature, was because of mass incarceration. It was to reduce prison populations. That didn't help. Now we've instituted it as a means to reduce jail population. And it's still not helping. The empirical data for electronic monitoring that people stand by and they say, you know what, this is the answer. This is what we need to do. This is our future moving forward for granting people freedom. They found two things to be true. Electronic monitoring, post-conviction or pre-trial. It's ineffective in and of itself. Meaning you put an ankle monitor on somebody, it does not increase their odds of succeeding post-conviction. It does not increase their odds of returning back to court or to stay out of trouble. However, EM, coupled with the connection to community resources and supports, is what they found to be successful. So the question that I hope we're going to ask ourselves walking out of this room is, is it the community resources and supports that are actually needed in our communities? Or is it the electronic monitoring? Because at the end of the day, we cannot put our hope that technology is going to change a human addiction. That uh, an electrical device is gonna change somebody's mental instability. That it's gonna take somebody from poverty and put them in a position of wealth. As we've heard today, it does the exact opposite of that. Here's a conclusion from the, the Federal Probation Journal. Deciding to place any offender on electronic supervision requires an adequate risk assessment to determine the individual's risk and criminogenic need factors. The assessment is a foundation for the rest of the supervision period. Foregoing adequate assessment would be like building a building on a faulty foundation the building will ultimately collapse and fail to provide safety. Supervising offenders without assessing their needs will also fail. This is their words. It's not ours. They know it. I didn't pull any wording from any report that was in support of ending electronic monitoring. Every report and study that I pulled was in favor of, but yet they still acknowledge that it doesn't work. 
So what caused somebody to go to prison? Was it a drug addiction? Was it, you know, violence? Was it what happened that actually led them to be in this situation in the first place? And what would they need in order to take them or remove them from that situation? So is it drug treatment? Is it, you know, some type of anger management? Is it, if it's a housing insecure individual, was it their homelessness that led them to trespass, loiter, or burglarize? And trying to identify if this person already had this issue or had this challenge prior to going to prison or prior to going to jail, keeping them in jail for 30 days, 90 days, nine years, six years, five months, didn't change that, that need that they had. So what they were saying is let's go back and let's revisit what actually put this person in this position. Let's re-examine their situation potentially of poverty and how they were in a financial crisis that led them to do something that may have caused them to go to prison, like sell drugs or commit a robbery. Let's look at those and let's, let's see what we can do to put a plan in place that is going to give them the resources and the means and the supports that will prevent them from ever needing to be in that position again. Thank you. Yes. If these reports were in favor of electronic monitoring, even as they found that it was on what grounds did they support it? A uh, need. Um, they actually, and there are several reports that actually said this, the need, the need to reduce prison population, the need to reduce jail overcrowding, the need to make sure that they have a system that they can still work with and make manageable. And also when it comes to a, a public sensibility of what's going on, it's a lot easier to say, you know what, we're sending people home. It's really easy. If I got the, the, yep. But would it be right to say then that in their eyes, they understand perfectly that they are sending people into another form of incarceration? I, I believe so. Um, there's actually a quote from Bio, um, Bio and Biostat International. They said, the main objectives for finding ways to ease overcrowding in prisons and reduce recidivism are driven by economic and political pressures. The electronic monitoring system is an example of disruptive innovation in government by delivering less, by delivering less direct community supervision and rehabilitation services to more offenders. They're acknowledging that they're giving less support to helping people get on their feet because it's easier for the government to manage. And this is once again, a quote from a study that supports electronic monitoring. It's not a secret. It's just, it's one of those things to where we don't, we don't know them. We don't know him. It's really easy for us to say, this isn't me and I'm okay. And in some way in the back of my mind, I could say they kind of deserve it. It's really easy to say those kind of things. It's really easy to walk through life being blind to somebody else's hardship. It's also really easy to say that somebody put themselves in that situation, but we don't know the life stories of the individuals. We don't know what challenges that they faced in life. We don't know where they came from, what the family unit looked like, what their economic situation is. At the end of the day, if we're not gonna treat our community like human beings and we're not gonna embrace each other as human beings, then we're gonna continue to see somebody sneak in something like electronic monitoring that is more harmful to our communities than it is beneficial. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.